0: You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. A voice woke him in the night. That's what saved him. He couldn't see who spoke in the darkness, but he didn't need to. He knew a divine messenger when he heard one. It spoke his name and warned him of the terrible divine judgment that was coming. A flood. One that would wash away all life from the earth. "'He must build a vessel,' the voice whispered, "'large enough to house the man, his wife, his family, "'every kind of creature on the earth, "'and every kind of seed. "'The vessel would be called the preserver of life.' "'The man worked tirelessly,' day in and day out, by sunlight and firelight. Finally, as his family boarded to store the last bit of seed, the rain began to fall. Soon it was a torrent, a mighty river from the heavens lashing his vessel from all sides. He lost count of the days. How could the sun rise through all that darkness, all that water? Inside the ship, the man could hear only the roaring winds and the ceaseless rain. At last, when all humankind was turned to clay, the sky grew silent. The man opened a hatch, looked out, and began to weep when he felt the warmth of the sun on his face. On every side, all he could see was a waste of water stretching out to the horizon, except for the mountain. Far in the distance, the peak of a mountaintop offered the hope of land. Days later, the vessel lodged there and didn't move. Afraid that the earth was simply gone, the man released a dove, which flew away but soon returned, having found no other place to perch. Sometime later, he released a swallow, who flew around but finding nowhere to land, returned. At last, he sent a raven, who flew far and wide, called once to the man, and did not return. The man opened the vessel, and he, his wife, his family, and the animals he had spared, walked out into this strange new wilderness. The man was Utnapishtim, who, along with his wife, had narrowly escaped the flood sent by Enlil, lord of the winds, only by the mercy of Ea, lord of water, whose whispers he had heard. This story of the deluge, so similar to the biblical account of Noah's flood, is from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the 4,000-year-old story of a Mesopotamian king who defied the gods, mourned the death of his partner, and set out to find the secret of eternal life. The civilizations of ancient Mesopotamia, a Greek word meaning between the rivers, occupied the floodplains of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Western Asia an area that now holds Iraq, Kuwait, and parts of eastern Syria and southeastern Turkey. The major Mesopotamian civilizations, the Sumerians and Akkadians, who incorporated the Assyrians and Babylonians into their empire, left us some of the earliest written records on earth in the form of clay tablets stamped in cuneiform. From roughly 4,000 to 3,000 BCE, Sumerian settlements in southern Mesopotamia gave rise to urban life, and, with the discovery of bronze smelting and the need for copper ore, conquest and empire. The polytheistic religion of ancient Mesopotamia featured a pantheon of gods, most of whom were considered benevolent, but not all. Some of the Mesopotamian gods were jealous and quick to anger, or ambivalent in their moods, like the Sumerian Inanna, called Ishtar in Akkadian. This goddess, known as the Queen of Heaven, oversaw love and fertility, but also warfare and violent conflict. Gilgamesh, king of the city of Uruk, of which Inanna was the patron goddess, discovers how dangerous she can be when he refuses to become her consort. Angered by his rejection, Inanna unleashes the Bull of Heaven, which kills hundreds of Gilgamesh's people before he and his partner Enkidu can defeat it. When Enkidu tears off the bull's haunch and furiously flings it at Inanna, the gods decree that Enkidu must die. Gilgamesh watches Enkidu fall ill and waste away, an inglorious death that guarantees he will be forgotten. Before his death, Enkidu has a dream of the bleak Mesopotamian afterlife.
1: There is a house whose people sit in darkness. Dust is their food, and clay their meat. They are clothed like birds with wings for covering. They see no light. They sit in darkness. I entered the house of dust, and I saw the kings of the earth, their crowns put away forever. Rulers and princes... All those who once wore kingly crowns and ruled the world in the days of old. In the house of dust which I entered were high priests and acolytes, priests of the incantation and of ecstasy. There were servers of the temple. I saw also Kain, god of cattle, and there was Rishkagal, the queen of the underworld, and Sheri, squatted in front of her. She who is recorder of the gods and keeps the book of death. She held a tablet from which she read. She raised her head. She saw me and spoke. Who has brought this one here?
0: Gilgamesh. Grieving and kidu and horrified by his vision of the underworld, where even kings and priests dwell in darkness, embarks on a journey to discover the secret of eternal life. He decides to speak to the only two mortals who have achieved it, Utnapishtim and his wife. Gilgamesh walks through a mountain where he spends seven days in darkness, eventually emerges to convince the ferryman Urshnabi to transport him across the River of the Dead, and meets Utnapishtim, who tells Gilgamesh the story of the flood. The Epic of Gilgamesh is one text among many that we've recovered from the ancient Mesopotamian world, thanks to the durability of their fired clay tablets. Among these texts are literature, diplomatic letters, law codes, treaties, and magical texts that describe the rituals and incantations to prevent, or in some cases, cause illness and other harm. Much of ancient Mesopotamian magic involved anti witchcraft rituals called maklu, which would be performed by specialists called in Akkadian ashipu or mashmashu. The closest English translation would be exorcists. These exorcists were usually male professionals who performed purification rituals for houses, stables, and fields foundation and dedication rituals for temples, and consecration rituals for religious and royal officials. But their most common job, by far, was combating witchcraft and healing illnesses by purification. The association of exorcists with healing was so pronounced that Mesopotamian medical texts often mentioned the physician, Asu, and the exorcist, Ashipu, together. The first would be called on to heal obvious physical ailments, while the second treated the more elusive ones. One Akkadian text describing the ritual of Maklu lists the possible causes of illness in the patient, including sorcerers, witches, and owl men. Those forces that could attack the purity of body and spirit also included various demons, angry gods, angry ghosts, one's own transgressions of taboos, and witchcraft. The harmful magic performed by witches, both male and female, was expressly forbidden in law codes, indicating the possibility of magical attack worried ancient Mesopotamians at all levels of society. Whatever the cause, misfortune, injury, and illness were always the result of spiritual impurity. Magical rituals for healing therefore purged impurities, and were designed to restore both physical and spiritual well-being. These purification rituals were also necessary for those who wished to enter temples and sanctuaries and for priests entering office. Such purification rituals often invoked Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, long considered to be the exorcist of the gods, and called on him to combat the forces of evil.
2: They have no god. They are children of the nether world, The evil Utuku, the evil Alu, the evil ghost, the evil Galu evil God, the evil Rabisu, Lamashtu, Labasu, and Ahasu. They descend on a man. They walk about stealthily in the street at night. They destroy the cattle pen and smash the sheepfold. They slither in through the door like a serpent. They drive through the door pivot like the wind. They drive the wife from her husband's lap. They remove the child from a man's knee. They oust the groom from his father-in-law's house. They spread stupor and oblivion. It is they who keep chasing a
1: man.
0: Of the demons listed in this incantation, the best known is Lamashtu, depicted with a female human body, the head of a lion, the ears of a donkey, the teeth of a dog, and the talons of an eagle. She was thought to attack women and infants before, during, and after childbirth, and possibly served as a prototype for the apocryphal biblical demon Lilith, since both represent the inverse of maternal nurturing. Precautions against Lamashtu's attacks included destroying images of her wearing protective amulets and chanting incantations to encourage her journey back to the underworld.
2: Pull up your tent pegs, roll up your ropes, go off to your mountain like a wild ass of the steppe. May Marduk, the incantation expert, the exorcist, give you a comb, a clasp, a spindle, a blanket and a dress pin, set out to the animals of the wilderness! May you be anointed with fine oil and may you carry a water skin for your thirst.
0: Other dangerous entities included Ardot Lily, Wind Maiden, the spirit of a young girl who never experienced love, marriage, or motherhood, who, in her sorrow and bitterness, drifts on the wind, inflicting mysterious illnesses, and Samanu, Redness who traveled across the river from the mountains to cause painful inflammation and bleeding. Of course, in addition to the many gods and demons who want to harm us, human curses also present a danger. Witches could use slander, curses, the evil eye, drugs, potions, and poisons to harm their enemies. Since evil magic was also associated with impurity, the possible solutions were linked. Witchcraft could be undone by the ritual of maklu, burning, while curses brought on by one's own wrongdoing could be undone by sherpu, incineration. The ritual of maklu took place over a single night and involved nearly a hundred incantations that allied the patient with the gods of the underworld who would bind the witches and with the gods of the heavens who would purify the patient. Other phrasing in these incantations emphasized the openness of this ritual, contrasting it with the secret nature of witchcraft. While the patient chanted these incantations, the exorcist burned effigies of sorcerers and witches.
3: Whoever you are, witch who took clay for my figurine from the river, who buried figurines of me in the dark house, who buried my water in a tomb, who picked up scraps discarded by me from the dust heaps, who tore off the fringe of a garment of mine at the fuller's house, who gathered dirt touched by my feet from a threshold. I sent to the gate of the key. They brought me tallow for your figurine. I sent to the canal of the city. They brought me clay for your figurine. I am sending against you the burning oven, the flaring fire god, the ever-alight fire god, the steady light of the gods. She trusts in her artful witchcraft, but I trust in the steady light of the fire god, the judge. Fire god, burn her. Fire god, incinerate her. Fire god, overpower her.
0: After the evildoer was repeatedly symbolically burned in the fire, the exorcist poured black liquid over the figure as the patient recited incantations to leave the attacker to death and darkness. As the sun rose, the patient gazed into his or her own reflection in a bowl of pure water and greeted Shamash, the sun god, as a savior.
3: You are my reflection. You are my vitality. You are my spirit. You are my bodily form. You are my bodily shape. You are my vigor. You are my great reflection. You are my self-renewing reflection. Reject witchcraft. Reject sorceries. You are mine, and I am yours. May nobody know you. May no evil approach you, by the command of Shamash, Marduk, and the Princess Belatili."
0: Unlike the ritual of Maklu, Sherpu purified the patients from their own wrongdoing. In a simplified ceremony, dough was applied to the patient, wiped off, and thrown into a ritual fire, along with other items representing the patient's sins. These could also be accompanied by prayers to appease offended and vengeful gods.
3: Life is bound up with death for me, and death is bound up with life for me. A mortal does not live forever. The days of his life are counted. If a mortal were to live forever, even if also the evil's befalling man, illness were to remain, it would not be a grievance for him. Now, may my God open his innermost soul to me with all his heart, and may he tell me my sins so that I can acknowledge them. May my God either speak to me in a dream and may my God open his heart and tell me my sins so that I can acknowledge them. Or let a dream interpreter speak to me or let a diviner of the sun God speak to me. And may my God open his innermost soul to me with all his heart and may he tell me my sins so that I can acknowledge them.
0: As if it weren't enough that the gods, witches, demons, and our own transgressions put us in mortal danger, the spirits of the deceased could also haunt us. We've already seen in Kidu's bleak vision of the Mesopotamian afterlife in the Epic of Gilgamesh. The deceased dwelled in the dark of the netherworld, eating clay and dust. Wise families routinely left offerings for their departed, especially food and drink. But, if a family neglected such offerings, or the manner of a person's death was too horrible to let them rest peacefully, their spirits could return to haunt the living. Like a banshee's wail, the cry of a ghost portended death and misfortunes. And ancient Mesopotamians developed rituals to help avert that fate. These rituals, called numberbi, which translates roughly to its release— sought to avert misfortune from ghosts by either pleading with them or commanding them to return to the underworld, and through sacrifice and prayers to Shamash, the divine judge who might overturn the sentence of illness or death placed on the patient. The exorcist could also be called on for more coercive purposes, to cast love spells, for example, or to secure the return of an escaped slave revealing the ambivalence of the ancient Mesopotamian exorcist. These rituals are among those forbidden to all others in ancient law codes. This ambivalence could inspire fear as well as respect, and fear often leads us to mock what we don't understand. One Akkadian literary parody which satirizes various professions also makes fun of an exorcist, who decides to purify a house from the demon that haunts it by setting the house on fire, and burning it to the ground. There were a million ways to die in ancient Mesopotamia. Unlike the dependable Egyptian Nile, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers flooded unpredictably, sometimes violently, washing away settlements and their inhabitants and destroying much-needed crops. Disease came and went mysteriously, and conflicts with neighboring city-states could lead to invasion and war, with the losers facing enslavement or death. The only salvation from these external dangers came in the form of physical and spiritual purification. The gods controlled the fate of humankind— And the anger of Enlil, lord of the winds, or of Ishtar, goddess of love and war, could perhaps be assuaged or overruled by Marduk, god of justice, or Shamash, lord of the sun. It's no wonder that the people of Mesopotamia looked to the Ashipu to drive away evil sent by others or to purge their own sins. Because the one thing that every Mesopotamian knew was the certainty of their own mortality. Their semi-divine hero, Gilgamesh, after all, failed in his quest to obtain immortality. Utnapishtim, survivor of the flood, gave the king who is two-thirds god and one-third man two opportunities to obtain eternal life. He first told Gilgamesh that he must stay awake for seven days and seven nights. If he could do that, he would be given the secret to eternal life. Gilgamesh, fell asleep instantly, and slept through all seven days of the challenge. He awoke on the seventh day to find the seven loaves of bread Utnapishtim's wife had baked, one for each day, in various states of staleness and moldiness. Utnapishtim then gave Gilgamesh a final challenge, to dive to the bottom of the underground sea of fresh water, and pick a thorny flowering plant that grows there, which has the power to restore youth and strength. Gilgamesh succeeds in obtaining the plant, but as he was retiring home, he stopped to bathe in a well of cool water. No sooner had he put down the plant than a serpent hiding in the water snatched up the flower, shed its skin, and dove back into the well. Having lost his last chance for eternal life, Gilgamesh wept and returned to his city of Uruk. The epic ends with the death and funeral rites of the king, where he's given the hope, if not of eternal life, at least of eternal remembrance. The destiny was fulfilled which the father of the gods, Enlil of the Mountain, had decreed for Gilgamesh. In Nether Earth, the darkness will show him a light. Of mankind, all that are known, None will leave a monument for generations to come to compare with His. You were given the kingship. Such was your destiny. Everlasting life was not your destiny. Because of this, do not be sad at heart. Do not be grieved or oppressed. Deal justly before the face of the sun. In those days the Lord Gilgamesh departed, the son of Ninsun, the king, peerless, Without an equal among men, who did not neglect Enlil his master. O Gilgamesh, Lord of Kullab, great is thy praise. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and help spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. This week's episode was produced by Corinne Wieben with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. If you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, just $5 a month gives you access to exclusive bonus content, sneak previews of what's ahead, and early access to upcoming episodes. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.